Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Work, the podcast where we tackle tough topics in ways that you won't hear elsewhere with guests that we are so lucky to have join us. Thank you for joining us today, Madeline Lorano, CEO and Principal Analyst at Aptitude Research. Madeline, please tell us a bit about yourself and about your business. Sure. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm thrilled to be here. I am an industry analyst, which is, I think, a strange role in this in this world of TA tech, HR technology. And I founded a company called Aptitude Research about six and a half years ago. We do research on HR technology. My focus is talent acquisition technology, because I think that's where most of the excitement is. And we do research and surveys and a lot of advisory as well. You know, I'm always fascinated by the category of talent acquisition because there are so many vendors I've met over the years who say um, to me, well, we have a new uh, talent acquisition technology solution and we are going to solve all of recruiting's problems. And I don't know about all of you, but you know, I started my career as a recruiter a million years ago and it's still broken. Um, you know, I, I don't see that recruiting is necessarily getting easier. It seems to be getting a lot more complex. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's getting definitely more complex. Talent acquisition has new responsibilities that it's really never had before. And there's new pressures. I think business leaders are more aware of talent acquisition as a practice because it's been hard to find talent. People are leaving and, you know, it's, it's had a huge impact on organizations. We did a big study this year on recruiters and the recruiter experience and the technology that recruiters want. And it was really eye-opening for me because there's a huge disconnect in organizations between just what that the experience is and how it's validated in the organization. And then the technology recruiters want, which is very different than what HR leaders and IT want within an organization. So it's, I think it's getting harder. And I think a lot of people come into the industry and they think, we're going to fix this or, aha, here's an opportunity. I worked on Wall Street. Why not fix what I saw on Wall Street and then we'll fix it in talent acquisition? And it's hard, it's hard work. Yeah. Yeah. Just because you've applied for a job in your career doesn't mean you now know how to fix recruiting. So, right. Right. Or I, conducted an interview. <laughs> well, that too. Yes, absolutely. John is chomping at the bit here. I know he's got well, questions so, for you, so Madeline. I want to ask the next obvious question, which is, do you think there's something that actually needs to be fixed? And do you think that there's a way to fix it? Yeah, it's like, I mean, that's the great question. Um, and I do, I think there's a couple of things that need to be fixed. I think talent acquisition, if you look at, you know, what it is and what's happened over, you know, decades and decades, um, the candidate experience, and I know there's lots of views on it, but the reality is people apply for jobs and they never hear anything back. They don't hear a response. They don't um, have any idea where they're at in the process. And this could take weeks and weeks, months and months. Um, there's lots of friends I have, people in the industry I know who go for an interview and the interview turns into 10 interviews and they hear no response. I mean, to me, that's a huge problem um, that hasn't been fixed. I know we both, we all know a lot of people during the pandemic that had that experience. So I think that's one area. It's kind of the humanity that's sort of been lost in this process. We're just not treating people like people <laughs> through the process. 
And I think the other piece is getting kind of getting back to that recruiter experience is recruiters are overwhelmed. They're, they're burnt out. They don't have the tools that they need. And I think at a basic level, companies don't really know what they do. And it's viewed as kind of a, a role that might not be as critical as it really is. So, so I wonder a lot whether most recruiters have any idea of what they're supposed to do. Um, and, and, so, and so I think about the technology that seems to have been built to serve them. And the core idea is that you can match a resume to a job, which is singularly nonsensical. Um, um, and what you get when you match a resume to a job is a mistake, um, almost inevitably. Um, and, and yet, that seems, seems to be that the industry is producing more and more stuff that does more and more matching and less and less stuff that looks at questions of how do people fit into the context and what's it really going to be like when you move this person from this background into that background, which strikes me as the real thing. So, so I wonder, because it, I think, and you can probably validate this, that the, the average tenure for a recruiter is a couple of years. So nobody knows what they're doing on average. Um, and you've got this technology that does the wrong stuff. So it seems like something might be broken. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, it is interesting. It's, the tenure is low. And um, we even found that, like, we asked, like, what's your background? Like, are you just out of college and you're just becoming a recruiter? And that wasn't always the case. Some people came from sales or marketing or, you know, finance or accounting even and became a recruiter for a few years. And it's tough work. It's long hours. And, you know, they don't always stay. And the technology doesn't always fit why somebody wants to be a recruiter. So if you look at how recruiters spend their time, it's often reviewing applicants in an ATS, scheduling interviews, finding applicants on different sourcing channels or within the ATS or CRM. They're not spending it doing what they probably would like to do, which is connect people, connect with early talent, help them see the opportunity to get their first job, be that first point of contact, find the meaning, and you know, really connecting people to an employer, they don't really have an opportunity to do that or to see that experience when they're just you know surfing through an ATS all the time. So I think you know, even John, going back to the matching question, I think matching and the goal of matching, if you think about it, just at a high level, like that's what it's essentially trying to do. Let's not let make recruiters spend all their time trying to find candidates in the ATS or CRM or God forbid, like scraping the web. <laughs> And, and finding all these candidates, you know, in sourcing solutions, let's help them create more meaning in what we can automate or use AI for. Um, the, the evolution I've seen with matching, though, has changed quite a bit. Like we saw, like we all know Jobbox and kind of matching way back when yes. that didn't work. Like we know companies were excited for Jobbox and then they tested out Jobbox with their high performing employees and it didn't work, it didn't match. And that's changed a lot. I think matching itself has changed a lot with providers out there that have, you know, done a much better job and like thinking about AI, thinking about ethical AI. But then we still see ATSs that try to offer matching that's just nonsensical. And we see a lot of sourcing providers that, you know, go out there to public profiles and, and look to match that way. So I think 
matching to me has more potential, but not when we're in this muddled confusion with what it is. Doing interesting stuff in matching, because really most of what I see is doing the same stupid stuff faster. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Within the ATS, I think that's true for a lot of like ATSs that have tried to build their own, but I think hired score and eightfold have done a great job of trying to put context behind just, you know, candidates saying like, what, how can we think about who this is in first skills? Think about um, using AI to kind of create a, a picture that's much stronger than just keywords on a resume. Yeah, but that's still, you know, the, the, the emphasis on the match between the resume or whatever you can gather about the person and the job description is essentially what ATSs do, and it's essentially what those companies do. And the problem is that nobody gets the job that's described in the job description, and the context, the how you use skills is entirely dependent on context and neither of those systems tell you anything about context. So to me, they look like doing the same thing faster. Well, not to mention so, the job description oftentimes is, is horrible. Right. I mean, who's writing the job, the job posts, the job description, you know, they have no idea what they're actually looking for, what the job actually entails. Or they're just reusing a job description that they've right. had for 20 years that hasn't been updated. I've been guilty of that as an employer, yeah. so I have to confess. Yeah. <laughs> there are aspects of, of the whole recruiting process. Writing your own resume is a horrible thing to do because you have to get introspective enough to, to look at yourself relatively objectively. Um, and writing a job description is the exact opposite of getting stuff done. Right. And so you have to stop getting stuff done to write an accurate job description. And if you need to hire people, it's because you don't have time to stop to write a job description. Exactly. So, exactly. So, so, so it's so hard to get that, that end of it right. Um, and I don't see anybody really tackling those kinds of questions. Yeah. The, the what causes the problem in the first place questions. Yeah, there's so many start and stops, right? I think exactly your point. Like, it's like why, you know, you have to start and write a job description. You have to stop and look for, you know, candidates in the ATS. It's all of these start and stops that don't fit in the workflow of the candidate or the recruiter. Well, and and we're still, you know, we're still down in the weeds. Um, who do you see, Madeline, who's doing some strategic thinking in the talent acquisition space? Yeah, from the um, the corporate side, corp. Yeah, corporate solutions providers. Yeah, you know, I, I just I, I wonder if we've just lost strategy and humanity entirely here, and we're you know we're we're just automating bad workflows in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think that is you know a problem with the pandemic too. It's like it was so easy to just think about how can we automate all of this mm-hmm. quickly because efficiency is everything right now and not focus on strategy, but there's a lot of TA leaders that I think are doing amazing work. Um, I mean, we all know Kyle, he gave the presentation at the HR tech conference. I think he's really being very thoughtful in his approach to the strategy for GM, but also the tech stack that he's building out. Jennifer Tracy at Spectrum um, is amazing. I mean, she's got an amazing team too. Um, You know, they're using assessments very, very uniquely. They're really trying to think through some of these strategies 
Kelly Cartwright's doing some interesting things at Splunk now um, and has, you know, moved some of her AWS team over there as well to support her. And then I think, um, you know, from the solution provider side, there's, you know, there's the challenge with like human, like we want to think about how do we add humanity back to talent acquisition, but we have to make money too. And sometimes those two things don't go hand in hand. So I think it's, you know, a challenge, you know, on the vendor side to think about strategy and um, also what what's being sold. Um, but there's some, I mean, there's some innovation. I think I'm excited about a lot of the innovation that I've seen and a lot of the focus um, from some of these providers, but, but it's confusing. Like it's, there's so many providers, so many categories. Mm-hmm. There are companies recreating categories. There's, you know, just just a lot of confusion. I think it's really hard to be a buyer right now. Yeah, as a buyer, I wouldn't even know where to start. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the well, the ATS category is fairly saturated, so I, I think you can figure that one out. But but do so? Do the buyers um, do they come to you, Madeline, to to for guidance in terms of what their tech stack should look like? Yeah, and we don't do selection or implementation. There's a lot of great people that do that work, but. Um, yeah, they want to understand the landscape and then they want to understand how to shortlist that landscape. And, and it's overwhelming. Like I look at like when we do landscape sessions with, with buyers, um, they don't even have like a basic understanding of how to get down to 10, like 10 providers. And that's a lot. That's still way too <laughs> that's much. That's huge. Yeah. That's yeah. huge. <laughs> so, I mean, even starting there, they're, they're not familiar with who the players are and what categories they fall into. Um, so we kind of start at the high level of, you know, what's happening in the market and then provide insight into the landscape. And then it becomes clear, you know, how to shortlist and who to shortlist. But it's it's definitely an overwhelming industry right now. So what do you think about these big funding moments? I mean, there's, there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of a money. ton <laughs> of money coming in. How do you yeah. make sense out of that? So much money. And. Sometimes it just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I think we probably all feel that. Like, it's like we see a provider raise 100 million, 200 million. And first of all, it doesn't make sense given the size of who they are and the categories that some of them play in. But also you wonder what is the trajectory for them with that round of investment? What are they going to be able to do with that? What's the impact going to be on the customer? I think for a long time, I thought, you know, money that's raised in this industry you know, buyers care or they don't care. And sometimes doesn't impact them. I think today it absolutely does. You have to be very careful as a buyer, if you're going to invest in a provider that's just raised, you know, I'm making this up, but $200 million doesn't have strong leadership, doesn't have a strong product Mm -hmm. and doesn't really know what to do with that money because they're going to feel intense pressure from their investors to either sell, Mm -hmm. you know, get out somehow or just sell, 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 sell whatever they can to buyers without thinking about what is in the best interest of the customer. Yeah. What we see those vendors doing is just um, being all things to all people. I yeah. mean, categorically, uh, there's no clarity. They they just like, uh, you know, any anything that looks like a deal, they, they take and they then, of course, fail miserably at right. implementation. Um, so yeah, buyer beware. Absolutely. I think, I think that's a very good point you've both raised that the, um, the buyer needs to uh, look under the hood and 
I also think, though, that the signals have changed. You know, we used to see a very clear path from seed to Series A to Series B. And, I mean, all of that is becoming very, very um, unpredictable, uh, and, and the numbers are crazy. Do you think blitz scaling works, and is that is that what we're seeing here, Madeline? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what you know is happening for some of these providers. I think it's you know, I think it depends on the provider. I think it depends on who the investors are. Um, it's been surprising to me that some investors are pretty hands off, <laughs> given how much they've put into some of these providers and saying, you know, do what you want at your own pace. That's very surprising to me, given some of these rounds of investment, um, but. You know, I think I think this is going to somehow play out in the next year or two where we're just not going to be able to, you know, sustain this. Yeah. Who do, who do you um, who are you most excited about, you know, as you look into this category? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I think Paradox is really interesting to me because they've those use cases have expanded. You know, they're they're winning not just hourly customers, but a lot of professional um, customers too. It would be interesting to see more providers really compete with them because it doesn't seem like there's a ton of competition right now. Um, I like. I don't know if you did. You meet um, Barb Hyman from Predictive Hire. She's in Australia. I think John, you may have connected with her. Um, I like the approach that she's been doing too with Predictive Hire, where they um, do inter like it's interviewing to hire. Like that's kind of the space they play in is the hiring space. And a lot of it is through conversation and an assessment that they've built, that they provide feedback to candidates. And it's been really interesting for neurodiversity because a lot of um, individuals would rather communicate through text, through interview and hiring process than through they don't feel comfortable in front of a video. Um, I don't always feel comfortable in front of a video either. So it's a nice it's a nice option. I think um, that's been a really interesting one to me. I like the the marketing automation that Candidate ID and some of its more recent competitors are kind of bringing to the market. Um, so it's been, you know, I think thinking about my answers, it's been more ecosystem providers than I, I think would be the large providers right now. Interesting. That's very interesting. John, that pregnant pause. Come on now. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to figure out how we get out of the muddle, right? The, 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 <laughs> Everyone stops right. hiring for six months, we fix right. this, and then we'll be fine. <laughs> it almost happened in 2020, right? We almost, exactly. we almost <laughs> that. That's, yeah, touche. <laughs> yeah, it just, it seems to me that, that, that the nature of work is, is, the change in the nature of work is accelerating at the same time that, the tools that we have to bring people into our tribes are deteriorating. Right? I, I, I really, I, re I really am, am just astonished by how hard you can kick a dead horse and make money out of it. You know, and 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 that doesn't make sense when the attributes of somebody who works well in the 21st century don't really look like the attributes of somebody who worked well even five years ago. Yeah. Um, and, and the technology doesn't seem to pay any attention to that at all. Yeah, it's changed. And the technology still kind of focused on fixing some of the same problems, I think, from 20 years ago. So I think 
Um, I think it's true. I mean, I think the skills conversation is trying to get after that too, though, John, like, do you think that's true? Like where, if you think about just the, the idea of skills and skills ontology and like using a skills framework for hiring or retention or whatever it is, it's to better understand talent, who they are to see the real person and then understand how that could fit into the organization now or in the future. Um, but it's hard to do and it's hard to build and not a lot of providers do it well. So, so I think skills is a dead end. I, I think, I think it's, um, well, I'll I tell you what, there, there's, a, there's a provider who you've mentioned who I won't pick on particularly who talks about having a million skills in their portfolio, which is the highest form of nonsense that I've ever ever imagine because a million skills you can't do anything with a million skills um but but let's take it down to somebody who's got a relatively coherent taxonomy and has 15 or sixteen thousand skills well defined and laid out the problem is nobody has a tool for validating those skills so so if every one of those seventeen thousand skills is a spectrum from don't know what you're doing to nobody does it better. And you've got, you've got Madeline's got this list of 20 skills. None of them are going to be calibrated. So you don't really know anything about Madeline except she's got some skills, but doesn't have some other skills, but we don't know how good she actually is. And we don't have any way of testing it. And we don't have any way of doing an apples to apples comparison of Madeline. So, so. What you end up with, if you build a really good skills-oriented system, is you end up with an appetite for testing and validation that can't be met, right? Or let's say, let's say you go out to the rest of talent management and you say, here's the total skills inventory of our workforce today, and here's the skills inventory of the workforce that we want to have five years from now so that we're effective in the marketplace. How do you get there? Right? Nobody's got the how do you get there stuff. And then on top of all of that, work is different in every context. So, right, right. And so a, a software developer at Deloitte who goes to four meetings a week, four meetings a day, gets A's because software developers at Deloitte are billable hours people, but a software developer at Hewlett Packard, who goes to four meetings a day, gets fired because Hewlett Packard is a comp- is a product company, and and product people don't go to meetings like that. Um, so so the exact same set of skills in the wrong context, right? right? And no, right. and nobody's nobody's got a tool that says here are those skills in that context, right? And and that's the missing piece. So mm-hmm. so. So I think I think the hype about skills is way overplayed. I, I don't know about that. I'm not sure I agree with you there. <laughs> it's changed a lot. I mean, we we saw skills as kind of being a big conversation. Like remember, we call them capabilities, but we would talk about capability frameworks. I mean, a talent management, that whole practice 15 years ago is built on these capability, you know, frameworks that we would all talk about. And it was a lot of work. Like companies would have to build their own, would take five years. And, you know, I think, John, to your point, like they weren't updated, they weren't put in context, they were just a library of outdated (laughs) capabilities. And now 
I do think that the, the path where skills has this potential is, can they be updated? Can they be dynamic? Can they be through AI? Can they um, be put in some type of context the more companies use them? And then does the employee have an opportunity to either develop their own skills or self-identify skills that they want for their path? Um, the validation piece is an, is an important one, though, because, John, if we both put on our skills that we are, um, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, excellent hand at handwriting and cursive writing, and I'm terrible at it, um, just because we both self-identify that skill doesn't necessarily mean that we both have it and no one's validated. Yeah, no, so, that's that's LinkedIn. Yeah. That's yeah. self-reported <laughs> skills. <laughs> that's LinkedIn, it's 100%. Yeah. But the other thing that's happening is, is there are enormous systems that will take your resume and go, no, because, because you're an industry analyst, you must have great handwriting skills. And so it'll assign you those skills. You don't even have to self-report now. The, the machine will make its mind up for you, even though you work in a place that's totally paperless and right. you haven't had to do anything with handwriting for 20 years. The system will assign, and this, this is what the big enterprise companies are all doing with their skills ontologies, is um, shoveling assessments of people's skills and capabilities into their, their HRISs because people don't self-report. Because yeah. it's so, inferred. Right. But isn't it but isn't it a better option than taking a resume that someone writes on their own without any expertise in writing a resume and trying to match it based on just the words used in that resume? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't I, think John I, I, ever I, says I don't know. So you've stumped him here, Madeline. <laughs> We might have to edit this out. John might ask for this to be edited out. <laughs> well, well, well. So, so this this is this is part of what what concerns me. A resume is a tool for getting an interview. It's not a, a dossier. It's not a certified list of credentials. It's my view of what you need to see. So that you'll talk to me, so that we can actually talk. About right. So I can game the ATS and get an interview. That's or, what I'm doing. Or, or whatever. The, the the question of how you get to the top of the pile was always a question with resumes, right? Because because the stories of people not getting heard after sending hundreds of resumes mm -hmm. out to the world are older than me, and God knows I'm a thousand years old. Um, and so, so the ATSs have just sort of expedited the the gap, but but I don't think you get there from matching. I, I think that the problem is the belief that you can get there through matching. Um, and so, so that's where I expect I expect the industry will change fairly quickly because as long as it's about matching, then recruiting is going to produce mediocrity. Um, and people are going to get wise to the fact that recruiting produces mediocrity and insist that something different happened there. And that will happen sooner rather than later. And you'll start to see business failure that's attributed to failures in recruiting. Yeah. 
And I think talent acquisition is a topic that's on the board level in most organizations now. So yeah. so this is just not going to be tolerated, especially in light of the great resignation. We're not really seeing these numbers slow down significantly. Um, people are still leaving jobs. I, I, I'm just I find it a bit mind boggling because, you know, to some extent they're going to find um, the grass is not greener on the other side. But, you know, that's part of the career journey to begin with. Yeah, it's continuing. Yeah. And even I mean, in hourly, too, it's just very difficult. I mean, yeah. to recruit hourly workers right now, it's not gotten easier this year. Yeah. I mean, what a lot is, of companies thought it would. Target is up to like $24 an hour or something. Yeah. I mean, you see these incredible, yeah. gosh, ay, ay, ay. And sign-on bonuses, they're paying people to come in for an interview for hourly jobs. So not really? only are you getting potentially $24, but it's like a hundred bucks. Can you just come in for an interview? We need to show that we've interviewed somebody. I have to leave. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, yeah, have yeah. To, <laughs> I have to go now and do an interview at McDonald's. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's crazy. And isn't, that, isn't, that, isn't it about time that that um, people people's time be respected by their potential employers? Well, that people be respected. Absolutely. This brings us back to our opening conversation about candidates and people actually, you know, taking days off and rearranging their lives to do, you know, 10 interviews and to also be asked to produce work product, which is something that drives me stark raving mad because I would never ask somebody to do that. Um, but to, to produce work product as part of the interviewing cycle and then poof, it's as if they never existed. They ghost them. And it's I, I just think that's, that's so disrespectful. Um, oh, to make someone take 10 interviews, mm. 10 interviews, produce product at some point through that process and – not, not only they are they not receiving the job, but they're not receiving the response. Exactly. No, that's untenable. Just yeah. untenable. Well, unfortunately, that also brings us to the end of today's discussion. Clearly, we need to unpack this uh, over the course of several conversations with you, Madeline. So <laughs> you'll be back. I hope you'll be agreeable to do that. Um, John, any closing comments? Yes, thanks, Madeline. This was fantastic. I really appreciate it. And I wish that everybody in the audience could see the artwork. This yes, we're oh, so enjoying it. I know. I'll take a picture and share it. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. I love, always love talking to both of you. So, And Madeline, um, yeah, how, how do people get in touch with you? Because we want to make sure that people understand the not only the important role an industry analyst plays, but you are the leading analyst in the talent acquisition space. So Thank how you. do they get in touch with you? Sure. So anyone can go to, they can see any of the research. It's free at aptituderesearch.com. Um, my email is madeline at aptiterp.com. I'm on Twitter, Mad Tarquin. I'm on LinkedIn. You know, there are lots of different ways. And they'll see you speaking at conferences and such. So, uh, so yes, you're very visible. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you to our listeners. This is The Work. We'll be in touch soon.